so yeah, I'll, I'll, I guess we'll start, um, you know, with a little introduction. Uh, you know, I only know a little bit about you and about your, your, your company, um, just from a, a, you know, a bit of research I did prior to, to the show. So yeah, I'd love for you to just sort of introduce who you are and, and what, and how to pronounce Pomerium. Pum, <laughs> oh, okay. It was either that or going to be my last name. So I'll, I'll, I'll do both. Uh, so my name is Bobby Desimone. I'm the founder of Pomerium, which to be honest, unless you're like a second century Roman, um, I don't think we'll ever get the true, or you're in the Vatican for some reason, true Latin pronunciation of that. Um, but yeah, Pomerium is, uh, I guess, a play on words for beyond the wall. A lot of what we do is deperimeterize things. Uh, so uh, I thought it was clever. I'm not sure anyone else is in on the joke, although occasionally we'll get someone jump into uh, uh, like Slack or something and say, I love the name. It makes that five years of high school Latin worth it. So as long as I'm justifying that for folks, uh, it makes me a little bit happy. Oh, no, I do like it. Um, <clears throat> I didn't bother trying to Google it, and I definitely didn't take any high school Latin, but... Uh, lucky but, you <laughs> yeah cool all the same despite actually I recently I, I actually recently published an article where I used some Latin loosely translated and I actually had somebody reach out to me on LinkedIn asking if I was classically trained and I didn't really know what he meant by that um, but I guess he was wondering if I had taken Latin which I disappointed him by saying I didn't but I know how to Google <laughs> um, and I, I don't know how I came up with that but anyways very cool uh, Pomerium got it I know how to say it now. I think that was my second guess, so that's good. Um, okay, so so, Pomerium. What is what 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 does Pomerium do? Yeah, I mean, in a really uh, terse way to describe it, we help uh, manage and uh, provide context-aware access to applications at scale. So that's the real short version of what we do. We're a reverse proxy that does context and then identity-aware access. So instead of using, say, like where you happen to be on the network, which is like sort of the old VPN way of determining access, we constantly assert identity and state for every single request to backend systems. Okay. And is this being done through an agent-based mechanism or is it are you constantly sort of uh communicating with uh i don't know one or multiple sort of server endpoints to say you know this is the context you know is this thing allowed to happen at this time you know this transaction or this entity accessing this thing yeah i know so there's no client uh which is why a lot of folks prefer us to like like i said a vpn solution there's no client it's just how you would normally go through to browser to access a web application. The difference is, is that every single request has sort of been annotated with the user's identity, usually through like most base in its most basic form, what happens to live in your single sign-on or identity provider. Um, and that's usually enriched several different ways from there, whether you're on like, you know, through what your device is, what your device state is, you know, whether you've integrated with us with like an HR system or any other source of knowledge that you want to take into account for your access control decisions. Okay, cool. And so I noticed in just your your very high level description of the product mm-hmm. that you, you didn't use the term zero trust. Um, <laughs> well, I didn't want I didn't want you to groan and get all sad and think you wasted a bunch of time. But yeah, it, sure. I, I 
Well, I don't think so. I'm not in the camp where I believe zero trust is some sort of snake oil term. Now, do I think yeah. that there are vendors or in, <laughs> that that use it in a way that's not genuine, or do I think that there are people who don't understand what it means to truly be zero trust? Certainly, but um, you know, I make no assumptions about that in this case. But I, I'm curious, just in the context of um, you know your understanding of zero trust, which I'm probably is probably pretty textbook um you know how pomerium you know falls within you know all the the general principles of zero trust and how that helps you know our organization sort of adhere to that sure no i i definitely think it does i mean i'm, I'm being a little glib because like like you noticed like unfortunately it's become a little bit of a marketing term which like it used to mean something and maybe like you, I feel like I, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater here because there's a lot of great core ideas here going all the way back to the Jericho forum and sort of the beyond core papers, which we can come back to and talk about, but essentially underlie some of the, I think the great ideas around zero trust. And certainly in that model, I think Pomerium fits, especially around, you know, if you go back to, if you, if you de-perimeterize your access control decisions, you want to replace it with something else. And that's something else I would strongly advocate for is identity and context and state. And, and from that point of view, Pomerium definitely is a piece of that zero trust uh, puzzle in this sort of new um, uh, threat model uh, that I that I do think is a lot better than what we've been operating under for years. Um, so yeah, I, I do think it, we fit under a part of the zero trust solution space, um, but unfortunately it's become pretty nebulous with what zero trust means. Uh, although I hope it gets better articulated um, as we as we go further into sort of the product cycle. Sure, and so I don't know. I forget exactly when, but some sometime in in sort of recent history, NIST published their like official ZTA guidance. So I'm curious with you know with that guidance now now out there, and mm. you know they're sort of being this you know, I don't know what you want to call it, you know, sort of compass pointing towards like, this is what, you know, this is, this is a, a, a very official source for what ZTA is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how have, how have you or Pomerium, you know, sort of mm -hmm. taken that and said, you know, this is like mapping it to what NIST has published and saying, mm -hmm. you know, trying to, I guess, um, better the, um, reputation that's like you know <laughs> i think you've sort of mentioned like you know zero trust has this sort of snake oily reputation now but but yeah. now that that it, it's got that sort of wings beneath it with with you know nist guidance I'm, I'm curious what that means for your company yeah no i think the nist guidance was super helpful and i think there's been a few other follow-on you know recommendations you know in particular coming out of the government like there was the presidential memo which i think was really helpful in like guiding folks to what i think is like a a more clear uh, articulation of what zero trust uh, can be. Um, you know, there are places where the NIST guidelines are intentionally vague, and uh, and I think that's a good thing. Um, not to do some self promotion, but we we were able to um, interview some of the, the the NIST authors on that. We have a blog post on that, um, kind of diving in a little deeper about what some of these uh, concepts articulated. You know what they imagine and to dive a little bit deeper, especially for things that we're principally concerned about, which is like, you know, that north south user base access of context or that context aware user base access. Um, and so I, I, you know, coming back to that, I think that's where Pomerium really plays 
a key role. It's it's not only you know a gateway point, but an edge policy enforcement point, um, and it it brings all those uh, multiple records of account into that access control decision. So, you know, Pomerium plays you know checks several boxes in that sort of NIST guidelines. In, in you know, in my opinion, um, not all, but certainly it, it plays a plays a key role. Sure, I haven't. I've only really skimmed that document, so I and I'm and I'm and I'm certainly don't want to come off it or or market myself as some sort of zero trust expert. But um, so I, but I am curious from really two parts. But I guess I'll start with just the NIST guidance. I'm I'm curious sure. what NIST recommends or suggests as sort of sort of the base level of the types of contextual elements that you bring into those access control decisions. And I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of things that you can use to make those decisions, but does NIST have like a baseline for like, if you have just these five things or five of these 10 things, this is, you start to be able to, to make decisions in a, in a, you know, in a valuable way. Yeah. I, I, I would say this is one of the places. And again, I'm not an expert on the document myself having, I've definitely read it several times and, and written a, you know, a post or two about it. Uh, I'm not authoritative at all about what they were trying to articulate. So I'll just do my best. Um, I would say they're, they're not as prescriptive as you'd think around those things. I think they've kept it intentionally vague. Uh, and in some ways that makes sense, right? So they're not going to say, Hey, you really should get your identity information from your identity provider, your, you know, um, state, uh, device state information from your MDM provider. They're much more vague about that. And they sort of put it in buckets around, you know, user identity and user state, which are separate and same with device identity and device state. And then finally, I, I would say the third bucket is sort of like request context, uh, which is, you know, it gets a little bleeds into more of the perimeter uh, base uh, world and how, how that's thought of. But I, I think those are more broad buckets and they're less prescriptive and, you know, how you would go about integrating that into like, a you know, an authorization decision or a policy enforcement decision. Um, okay. Yeah, cool. So that, I mean, that leads me into just from, and I'm sure you, I mean, context-based decisions are going to be based on what context you can pull, right? What, what, what exactly. sources of information you have. So, I'm curious from your perspective, you know, when you walk into it, you know, in a, a, you know, customer environment and they're interested in zero trust and they're PSing your tool, you're evaluating, you know, how you can implement it there. Is there, is there a set of core, like, uh, you know, context sources that you're looking for? Definitely. Um, I would say like table stakes nowadays as that there's usually some sort of single sign-on provider or uh, identity provider. Uh, at least one, usually, depending on how the company has grown. But I would say that's sort of the centerpiece of uh, all access decisions, uh, no matter how sophisticated uh, the organization is or where they are in their kind of like zero trust journey or how sophisticated those context decisions eventually become. They all sort of start with integrating user identity into those policy decisions via their existing identity provider. So sometimes people ask like how are you different than okta or you know are are you an identity provider yourself uh, we're not we integrate with all the major identity providers we're usually we're usually leveraging that user identity as a first step and then as you know we get more ingrained and sophistication grows we start looking to 
other records of account that are usually, you know, what is most important to that organization. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that helps, but usually the first step is integrating their identity provider. Yeah, no, that does help. Um, so obviously, okay. So you bring that in, let's say that's all you have, um, out of the box. I mean, it sounds like there's, I mean, there's a policy engine, a decision engine. you build policies Mm -hmm. on top of that. And I imagine maybe there's policies that come sort of out of the box and you can maybe write your own or work with your team. Maybe you have like a managed service or a, or a, a customer facing arm that can build policies for you. Um, so I, so I guess my, my question is, um, is it all sort of, I'll call it policy based, like signature based, or is there a, is there any sort of ML, like AI, like baselining oh. environment and trying to identify, you know, anomalies and make decisions sure. in that, in that fashion as well? Yeah, that's a really good question. I would say, so there's different tiers you can write policy at, at its most simple level. Um, our policy language is just like a very simple declarative language. Like, like I would say 90% of policies you want to write are pretty simple. They're, they're like, you know, let these people and these groups into this, you know, uh, this site or into our, um, GitLab instance, let all the developers and QA and, you know, DevOps folks into that. And then, you know, certain roles or specific users, it's all pretty, pretty (laughs) like straightforward in that way. I would say the next level down from that is we have, uh, if you're familiar with a, uh, a product called Rego or Open Policy Agent that lets you actually write, you know, uh, I don't think it's uh, Turing complete, but it's a pretty sophisticated language that you can write a, a pretty much as complicated access policy as you want and articulate it that way. I'd say there's a small subset of users that articulate their access policy and Rego, which you can get, you know, time of day, you can, you can basically articulate whatever you want, including to your question is like, can you integrate with a third party ML or uh, machine learning or inferential statistics anomaly detection, whatever it is you're, you're pulling in uh, system? The answer is yes, but um, in practice, it's something that uh, you have to be really careful about um, because, because we're making access control decisions on every single request. And I mean, every single request, like our internal target is making sure all policy is evaluated in under like three milliseconds. So as long as that ML, uh, like offline ML decision-making system is within that range, it'll be swimming. But if it's, you know, if you're intending to have every single request hit that pipeline and you, you might be asking for, for trouble. So either we recommend people use uh, ML pipeline that they know is performs within that range or do it on every, you know, 10 minutes or some, some longer request frame. Sure. Um, Yeah. That makes sense. So I, so I've never been explicitly an IAM engineer, nor have I really spent a lot of time administering, you know, IAM policies, whether it's like AWS, Azure, like, you know, traditional on-prem like identity or, or, uh, you know, groups, um, mm-hmm. you know, role-based groups. But I know from just my experience as a security engineer and pen tester and general offensive security person that sure. a lot of vulnerability is often in in sort of that realm, right? Things, right. you know, improper access control, sure. um, you know, improper, you know, uh, uh, broken object level authorization, like these sorts of vulnerabilities. So how does, and, and well, I guess I won't, I won't try to guess, but does, does this, does Pomerium or similar solutions, but does Pomerium help with 
the maintenance and creation of you know a robust set of IAM policies because I find that that's you know it's great that if you can make decisions but it's often that people don't know or or don't take the time to you know properly administer you know role based access control right right does this help solve that in any way well at some level that's a that's a a process and uh, um, a corporate wide you know decision and how you know how they manage their you know, the overall identity and access management policy i would say pomerium definitely helps in the regards that it, it's a centralized um repository of those policies so you know for instance like something that's very typical for us is that we'll have um you know a customer with a, a bunch of range of applications behind pomerium some very modern with very uh, sophisticated internal role-based access control, some complete legacy systems with like oftentimes no access control, very little, huge range. So one of the like big value propositions for our customers is putting Pomerium in front of all those properties. You know, it's sort of like a, you know, rising tide raises all ships sort of thing. So you get that access policy in front of whatever uh, the internal applications own access policy is. you know, standardizing all access policy across all those, you know, different properties individually is like a really hard problem. That's why there's so many different like, you know, identity access management languages, right? So like whether they're on GCP or AWS, they're like totally different access models. Um, and, and in some ways, Pomerium helps, um, you know, standardize across both your, your cloud properties, your on-premise properties, your legacy properties. Um, yeah so in that sense I, I think we are helpful yeah no that I, that makes sense um you know since pomerium is that gateway and that sort of single source making all these access decisions i would think that there's a bit there's some data to tap into in terms of trying to map it to things that seem anomalous or seem or things that seem outside of best practice you know one example i thought of was it's you know it seems like you have because you have this context because you have an understanding of what this thing is accessing by whom at what time with this mm-hmm. this you know with this this and this you can say well it seems like you have a lot of admins it's it's weird for you to have this many people with admin access and just make mm-hmm. a suggestion not not miss it, make a decision but but start making suggestions mm-hmm. and I'm not saying the tool does this or I'm I'm just sort of spitballing like cool ideas um, but. It, 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 it would be, would be a, a cool idea, like retrospectively say, hey, we've noticed this pattern. Um, we, we currently don't do that, but you're, you're totally but on to it. I guess you could make, you could take those decisions. I guess a better place for it maybe is to just take a, I'm guessing there's some export, right? Um, that you can send out to a SIM to make those sorts of decisions. Totally. I think that would probably be better something like as opposed to real time and making those um, recommendations. Uh, we do like you, you pinned it out. We do um, allow export of all those audit logs to a SIM and you could like retrospectively go back uh, and we might <laughs> uh, recommend say, Hey, this, this looks a little bit off or not like the anomaly detection, not at the time of access control, but like later on say, Hey, um, do you really have employees working both out of Iran and North Korea at the same time with the same user account? Now you can explicitly through a rule say never allow that or whatever, but um, I think like the next iteration 
uh, on on what we do would look very something very similar to that, like auto rules or or things that look wrong after the fact uh, in aggregate, and then you run the like maybe whatever your machine learning pipeline is on top of that, uh, not in real time but after the fact. Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. So speaking of policies, I'm I I, I did a podcast. I don't know a show a couple episodes ago about ransomware, and mm-hmm. I think. You know, of of the many you know things that you might recommend as like this, you know, this is a great defense for ransomware. I think this this you know this sort of solution definitely falls within that camp. So I'm curious. Um, and obviously, ransomware is on the top of a lot of security teams' minds. I'm curious, and you can give me the sales pitch or or however you like to do it. <laughs> but I'm curious, yeah. you know, what comes out of the you know what comes in the box, right? In terms of you know, we put Pomerium in. There's a, comes with a bunch of policies. We have this stuff that stops or, or slows down or, or otherwise like neuters ransomware altogether. Um, or here's how you can develop, uh, you know, policies that do that. But I'm curious, you know, how, at least how you market this solution to to stop ransomware specifically. Yeah, I mean, ransomware is such, I mean, I'm sure you covered in, in your previous podcast, it's such a complicated subject where the point of ingress is, right? So it's, there's a lot of places where, uh, an attacker can inject ransomware into your systems. Um, so, sir, but before you launch in, so I just so I can narrow it down a little bit. I think yeah. one of the key, the things that make ransomware scary is mm-hmm. you know not not the fact that somebody can get a foothold and launch a stage zero and and compromise a single box. It's once they're past that cushy interior, how can they how can they rapidly yeah. Uh, multiply and, 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 you know, knock down a bunch of things and take it all over. So, and I think that's where zero trust starts to make yes. decisions internally, right? As you said, deperimeterize. So you're no longer worried about, can they get to one machine? It's, you know, what can they do at scale to, to compromise? So with that context, now I think this is where. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I told And you're probably going to say that. You're probably going to say that. But. <laughs> no, you've nailed it. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I mean, hard, crunchy outside, soft, gooey inside is like still the norm. You know, that's a lot of the reason why I started working on Pomerium in the first place, you know, like and why I quit my day job at the time. Uh, You know, you're exactly right. Once you have a foothold on a typical perimeterized, you know, network where that's your threat model, it's too easy to move laterally. And so one of the real big advantages and thanks for, you know, being able to articulate this is to to be able to um segment to the lowest possible unit and that really prevents that that lateral movement that's largely done through encryption and policy and i think that's like the ultimate form of network segmentation um i'm super biased here but like you know it's it's um you know nano pico whatever your network segmentation is the ultimate form of that is uh mtls and you know encryption um uh authenticated on both ends and then having access to no other machines. So in that way, Pomerium is a key key portion of that uh, or key piece of that. So again, like we're super focused on that, like north south traffic with that, that user ingress point and then to the data center. And then I think, you know, other products like a lot of the service mesh products like Istio or, or things of that elk really kind of help once you're inside the data center to get that like, you know, TLS, all the things right as well as you know that like consistency visibility and control when you when you package something like pomerium with istio is like uh is, is a pretty cool model to 
with our customers. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I mean, I think a lot of people, whether they understand exactly what zero trust is or not, and what I, people, I mean, you know, security teams, you know, people who make business decisions, they, they understand that, well, maybe some people think it's a silver bullet, but they understand that it's, it's, it's a, it's, I'll, I'll call it advanced security capability. It's something that people should, you know, you, that you should aspire to. It brings a lot of security value, but I think there's also this, this is from my own perspective. There, there's a feeling that it's a pipe dream, very hard to achieve, yeah. not really yeah. realistic for a lot of companies, not realistic for, you know, large organizations with a lot of, you know, legacy infrastructure. So to, and because you, I mean, you will know, of course, a lot more about than me about the implementation of, you know, this tool or of just zero trust in general. I'm curious how, how you respond to somebody who says, ah, I love zero trust, but I, it's just not possible for my organization. Yeah. I, I think a lot of the criticism of like, you know, I'll go back to the beyond core papers. I think I've read something recently like this, which is like, yeah, only Google can do it. Stop trying to do what Google did. And like, on one hand, I I like I get it. I agree. Like, th there are portions of their model that are hard to replicate anywhere outside of Google. But like, part of the uniqueness of being able to get to that true zero trust or what Google was able to achieve internally is is being able to adopt all those different context sources that are relevant to their organization and have organizational buy-in into the new model. So some of those things are easier than the others. Some of it is like you said, you know, brownfield deployments are hard to carry forward. But you, you know, what I what I think is really fantastic about zero trust is it's not all or nothing. You don't have to say, okay, today we're zero trust only company, even though we've grown by mergers and acquisitions for 25 years and have a bunch of things written in Fortran and you know, a server rack somewhere and we're on four different clouds, you can iteratively take that journey and just put, you know, something like Pomerium in front of your more modern apps or paradoxically where we provide the most value to folks is usually to their, their more legacy apps where there's none of that access control. We immediately bump up the security and then eventually get to the point where, you know, they, they adopt it to more and more of their critical system. So I, I think what's, it, it is a pipe dream, but it's it's something that you can do iteratively um, and you can scale it to the organization and, and where you are. It's very, there's, Zero Trust is not one size fits all. Um, and I think that's the, the message that has been a little bit lost in the marketing, which is it's it's gotta be adapted to your own organization's needs and where you are in, in, in the cycle towards it. Yeah. I don't know if that answers that. Well. It does. And it actually, you know, it, 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 you make a great point. And it's sort of funny because it's in the name. I mean, zero trust doesn't have to be a one or a zero, right? It, yes. It, there's, you know, there's a lot of value to be gained by getting halfway there or doing, doing something, right? And I think a lot of people will see what zero trust is and, and think in their mind, like, I, I can either get to, you know the beyond court model the zero trust like in like in its in its like purest form or i can't and that's mm -hmm. as you're as you're pointing out it's, I mean, it's not really the case you can um you know you can make some parts of your network zero trust you can add you know some of the elements of zero trust without achieving every single principle right so there's a lot you can do to you know add that layer defense 
without necessarily getting all the way to zero trust. So yeah. It, makes... it, and maybe just one thought on that. I mean, like what this most practically looks like most of the time is, you know, people, people say, well, I can't get rid of my VPN completely. And I'm like, well, you don't have to, <laughs> you know, you, but does everyone need VPN access? Does, do your accountants who use web-based apps all day need VPN access? Or is it just your, you know, database administrators? I'm not saying that it's not a worthy goal to slowly remove VPN access from the whole organization, but it's a huge step forward, or maybe even, you know, 95% of your organization can be transitioned to, you know, a clientless VPNless, you know, zero trust style system. Um, and then you can chip away at the the harder to remove stuff, the TCP based access, the UDP based access, which is, which is a harder problem. Um, so it's definitely a staged approach. Sure. So I see a lot of, um, you know, just in my, in my history, and this is definitely related to that sort of perimeterized GUI center. I, I see a lot of completely unencrypted internal communications. Yeah. I'm curious. I mean, it might just be, you know, Pomerium doesn't really have that much to do with it. And your recommendation is to start encrypting things, but I'm curious how that plays into to what Pomerium does. It's a good question. So we certainly like I, you know, I, I have a strong point of view on on you know encrypting all the things, both externally and internally. The the place where we play the biggest role is externally. So we have tooling that makes external certificates, especially using things like Let's Encrypt, just drop dead easy. It just automatically works. When you create a new route, you get you know an A plus SSL Labs rated you know thing externally. Now, what happens between Pomerium and the data center, and that's when we hit that east-west traffic, depends a lot on your organization and, and where you're ready to start taking that, like both encryption and mutual authentication challenge. So it it, it really depends, but uh, we do we do encourage, and we're usually adopted with some sort of you know service mesh like Isio that makes that a little bit easier in like a Kubernetes environment or you can certainly do MTLS or, or just normal TLS uh, using, um, um, you know, traditional public key infrastructure stack. Um, so as it relates to Pomerium, we try to be as flexible as possible, though we certainly encourage that direction. Um, so. Okay, okay. I, I'm curious, um, I'm, as I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, the potential threat model against an organization that might be leveraging this mm -hmm. in the event that, and, and I'm curious maybe what you guys do internally to the extent that you can share it and, and what others have maybe expressed to you in terms of their concerns with taking all of their access decisions and sticking it in a, in a single place and, and yep. having that govern how everything talks to everything. Um, what, what, you know, what new attack surface or what new threats are introduced by having, and I understand like it, it adds a lot of security value, which is great, but it also sure. introduces this new, this new, you know, I don't know, we can call it a paradigm or something, but it, it, a new, a new, a new thing that, you know, attackers say, well, okay, I think they have, they're using Pomerium. And now mm -hmm. if I take down their decision maker, all traffic stops, like, I don't know if that's the case. There's a fail safe right in, in there so i'm curious what you know what attacks um you know sure. are introduced to be honest it's probably like an hour-long conversation within itself and something we're internally obsessed with because like we we feel that how important it 
our place in the infrastructure stack is just by nature of where we are, right? We're, we're the center point of, you know, policy decisions for uh, all, all, basically all internal apps for a lot of our customers. So there's, you know, the standard stuff, you know, we pen test regularly with a, you know, a reputable third party firm. All our major big companies, and um, I, I don't think I can name them, but they all red team us, which, you know, that helps us a lot as well. Our, our government uh, uh, partners also have an extensive pen testing process as well. To some extent, just being open source, although, you know, like many eyes makes all bug shallow is less true than I wish it was, uh, but there, there's a portion of that as well, which I think we are greatly benefited by being open source where all our core security features are there for everyone to, to look at and, and really scrutinize. Um, I, I think that's on, on you know, one side of it. I, I think the other side of it is it does introduce a new, I mean, it's not totally new, but we're usually the first introduction of this sort of context-based decision-making thinking. So usually our customers are familiar with making access control decisions around user identity. You know, Bobby's in this group, you know, let them in, or it's this time, don't let them in. Like we're very familiar with those, like kind of like a back, our back, you know, least user privilege kind of standard model. I think what people are less familiar with, and this is where the sharp edges can come out, which is not so much a policy or excuse me, a product efficiency, but like folks were less accustomed to thinking about user identity and say like device state at the same time and mixing and matching these two different um, concepts into a, a unified policy decision. So there's like, that is sort of a new attack vector, especially on, on the allow side. Um, I, I don't know if that makes a ton of sense, but it's that combination of factors, those super powerful can also be, you know, a little bit of a, um, yeah, you know, a stumbling block. I think that makes sense. I mean, but it, it's, I mean, it sounds like decisions are all, are as, you know, traditionally not being made that way anyway. So right. unless you're, unless you're throwing out some of your traditional RBAC based decisions in favor of these fancy new age decisions and those, because you don't fully understand them have mm-hmm. gaps in them, then I could see how you might introduce some potential issues. Um, but, but yeah, like, okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, go but ahead. Like it, it, it might be just accidental. For yeah, example, yeah. say that, say that you've got us a, a fleet of like, you know, rentable laptops on campus, right? Like Google famously does this. And then you've, you know, you have a policy that says, let anyone on a known device in a known good state into access our wiki. Like that's a totally reasonable policy. But if you forget to do the other thing, which is like, make sure they're also an employee, they're not on probation and they're in the right groups, you could have this like gap in in access. Yeah, no, I completely understand. And and on that note, I'm I'm interested and you know, like moving beyond, as you said, the the t- traditional, uh, you know, access control decisions that you make make with like RBAC, ABAC. What are some, like, I'll just say, what are some like cool, context aware, you know, decision policies that I either come you know in the box or or that you that you recommend say, hey, you know, this is this is one cool policy that we like to you know suggest to people because it, you know provides a lot of value i don't know if you can if you pull anything out like that but yeah i mean it's slightly different but like one of the cool things one of our like one one of the 
um, not so obvious benefits of like a system like ours, especially if you hook it into like a CI CD pipeline, is you can start automating not just the provisioning of like traditional dev resources or but also the access control around it. So like one of the cooler things that one of our customers have done is they're a data science heavy shop. Uh, I don't think I can say their name, but they they made a Slack bot that if someone needs like a ephemeral, you know, uh, machine learning Jupyter notebook, they can just like, you know, at the Slack box, all the proper ABAC, RBAC is provision, you know, the rules in Pomerum are correctly assigned. And even it correlates, my understanding is like the context around the user from Slack. So like their IP and all that stuff will also match like the rules in the creation of that Jupyter notebook too. So like it won't let someone like a different person than the person on Slack who asked for it be the one that accesses it. So it's like kind of a cool, you know, you know, use of ephemeral resources, uh, you know, automatic provisioning and assertion of access being matched to who actually requested the resource. So that's one of the ones that are, it's my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. I'm sure, I'm sure there's a ton. Um, I, I'm interested in, I, I see a lot of other vendors do this sure. at, in, in the, in the, not, not vendors in the, in this space necessarily, but just security vendors in general. In the wake of a, you know, uh, like a well-known security incident, you know, let's say like the sure. SolarWinds hack or the Lapsus Gang stuff or whatever it may be, a lot of vendors like to come out and say, hey, had you had our tool, had you had our yeah. thing, like, or had they had our thing, we would have been protected. And I don't know if there's like a specific use case that you guys have, you know, mapped out the TTPs and looked at what FireEye said and said, hey, I don't know, like it seems like, and, and tried to, you know, recreate it in your environment or an environment that has Pomerium and say, uh, you know, with these policies, you would have caught this, whatever. But I'm curious if there's any example that you guys have either, you know, played out, right, simulated and said, like, this is, or, or maybe you've built policies in the wake of these things and said, well, that's interesting tradecraft. And now we have a policy that explicitly would stop that. So I don't know if you have any examples of that. No, that's a, that's a really, I mean, there certainly are. Uh, I mean, um, we haven't gone so far as to create like a like a, a scenario internally of like demonstrating blocking it that we certainly should. Uh, some of the times, like for example, like the one that we're hearing, you know, is, is super on mind because of the whistleblowing is like the the Twitter, uh, whist uh, Twitter whistleblowing, but the underlying hack, I think back in 2020, if, if I recall correctly, had a lot to do with you know, our bread and butter, which is an internal employee only facing application that had to do with like very sensitive privileges that, you know, resulted in all these folks like Elon and Joe Biden getting hacked. Um, now, unfortunately, I don't have privileged information about exactly what that uh, customer or excuse me, employee portal looked like, but it's hard to imagine that if Pomerium wasn't, if Pomerium had been there, to assert not only a user identity, but a device identity and a device state and all those other contextual factors, it's very unlikely that those hackers would have been able to do what they did. For example, you know, that, that I think that's, I, I think a really strong use case for something like Pomerium. Sure, yeah. You know, the, the, the other, you know, vector, threat vector we, we sort of attack is um, implied in this scenario too, which is like, 
um, authentication and authorization is really hard to get right. Like, you know, this is, it's hard for us and it's our full-time gig, you know, it's like all we do. And um, making sure that, you know, every internal app team has that like open ID connect, OIDC, OAuth, you know, SAML capability is unrealistic. So that's another benefit of something like Pomerum. It's just making sure that, um, you know, you've got a team who's dedicated on authentication authorization in front of your internal apps. Sure. You mentioned you mentioned Pomerium was open source. Is there a way for somebody to stand up a version of what the what you guys of Pomerium without in without engaging with, you know, you guys officially? Yeah. You don't you don't have to reach out to sales to use uh open source Pomerium. It's totally full featured. Like we don't hold, you know, you know, there's no single sign-on tax security. Like I said, we benefit a ton from having our entire security model in the open source version. It's super full featured um, in its open source form. So yeah, if you go on GitHub, uh, github.com, Pomerium slash Pomerium, uh, folks can deploy it uh, directly um, in their environment. A lot of hobbyists use it. I use it at home. Um, and yeah, we get a lot of our um, actual business from hobbyists who eventually bring it into their company. So yeah, definitely check it out. And especially if you're a uh, core contributor, uh, that would, that would be excellent. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. I, I've got, I've like got to make a note to, well, I don't really need a note cause I'll remember, but I, I'm definitely going <laughs> to try it out on my own network. That'd be cool. Um, sure. I, I was just curious. I, I thought about that because for organizations that, you know, reach out to you and you guys help them install it or what, you know, whatever value add, you know, you guys bring, you know, they get it stood up and they love it and they're like, it's really helping them. But for whatever reason, they, they still want a zero trust solution, but they need to move off Pomerium for whatever reason. I don't know what that could be, but, um, you know, what that means in terms of moving to another vendor, is there a way to, you know, you you know, take the policies they've written and export them and import them somewhere else. Is there a way to, is there a way to easily, you know, like if I wanted, uh, I make a bad analogy, but if I wanted to move all of my blog posts from one hosting provider to another, you know, there's ways to do that depending on how yeah. I've written my blog. Right. But so I, I don't know if that's sort of a niche use case and maybe you guys haven't really thought it out cause you want everyone on Pomerium, but um, <laughs> sure. curious if what thoughts you have there. Yeah, I mean, I would say uh, it's not like an explicit goal we have, which is to like, you know, um, help people deprovision out of Pomerium. I would say like we're a relatively light lift because, um, you know, we can be deployed in like an all-in-one sidecar mode. So, you know, if, if we're not a good fit for you, um, usually you'll know that pretty quick. And then, you know, deprovisioning us is just going to a different system. And, you know, usually the policy language is slightly different. Um, if you're a big organization and you're like really worried that three years from now, you know, for whatever reason, we're not around and, and um, that makes you uncomfortable, although we obviously don't plan on that. Um, I would, I would usually point people towards you writing their uh, policy in that Rego language, I, which is also open source. Um, um, although it's a much heavier lift as I kind of uh, hinted at before. So, but it depends what your priorities are. Um, 
Yeah, I would think about it less as like less as a you having a mechanism to make it easier to deprovision to uh, pomerium and more of a and this may might just not exist so there's no real easy way to do it but you know imagine the you know the policy syntax is an open standard right so, mm-hmm. sound like what rego is so it's it's less it's less that hey you know we have a way for you to get off pomerium it's more hey if you're somewhere else this is why it's easy to come to pomerium cuz you right. there's there's this easy way for you to transition over without having to you know redo everything right and um, you know, I think that goes for a lot of tools, right? You can easily move to something else and that's, that's a benefit, right? Rather than a, you know, a bad thing. No, I, I see what you're saying. And, and that would be Rego in our case. I mean, this is sort of a pet annoyance of mine being in the, on the side of the house for a long time, but like, there really isn't a great, um, open policy language, um, out there. I, I'm actually, unfortunately, including Rego. Um, I, if you really want to have your eyes bleed, there was something called Zacamole, or I still, I'm sure there still is something called Zacamole, which is awful. A lot of the, you know, I, I was, um, HashiCorp has their own version of this, but it's not open called Sentinel. Um, so unfortunately, I don't think the um, overall community has a great standard, but the closest one I would say is uh, is Rego and OPA. Okay, yeah, cool. Some more research for me, more homework. These, these, these uh, every time I, you know, have somebody on, I always learn a lot. I, you know, I try to spend as little time as I can talking because I, I learn a lot from everyone that comes on. So I have a lot of homework now. Um, <laughs> so very cool. Um, I, I, I'm curious. Uh, we glazed over this in the beginning, just in your introduction, but, um, and to the extent that you know you want to cover some, uh, not your origin story necessarily, but what sort of got you into Pomerium? I mean, you can cover your origin story. I, I'd also be interested in that. But you know, what, what got you into, you know. The, the zero trust market and um you know what's your background a little bit you know <laughs> yeah it's a little uh roundabout but i actually got into it through security um that's that's really my my entry into the the industry in general um like probably everyone it was games that got me into it like on my first compact presario and whatever year it was um just wanted to you know I think it was like Warcraft or Starcraft or something like that. But what I quickly realized was like, I forget who showed me like Windy Bug or Ollie Debug. I forget which it was, but I ended up having more fun with a hex editor or a debugger than I did in the actual game. And I just sort of followed that through, like a lot of people, you know, like all of us sort of have this uh, intrinsic interest in pulling things apart and seeing what's under the hood. Uh, and that certainly was true for me. Um, I did a lot of game hacking and reverse engineering that kind of, uh, I accidentally learned a lot of computer science that way, I realized. Um, probably not good uh, fundamentals, but yeah, I, I wrote a lot of like bots for uh, games like Diablo 2. And then, you know, when you have to learn how to do pathfinding, you accidentally learn pathfinding algorithms and stuff like that. Um, and then I wrote some World of Warcraft bots pay for my first car and then that taught me how to program at ring zero um which was the way to get around i think it was warden at the time um so that that's sort of my background into computer science it's just like a lot of game reverse engineering getting in trouble in ways i probably shouldn't have um and yeah slowly i found my way into um um sort of the business side of you know security and, and things like that so um 
Yeah. Well, it seems like a, a I don't know how I, I don't I don't want to say like common, but but there's certainly a there's certainly a, a non-trivial amount of security and 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 really software engineers who sort of got in that way, right? Just mm-hmm. tinkering around with games, um, whether that be you know game hacking, I should say, but mm-hmm. but more, but more like even even if like my brother's a good example, he, you know he just uh, you know there's a modding community out there. They're not hacking sure. the game. They're 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 creating new stuff right yeah um, so there's a definitely there's definitely an allure i think for a lot of people um and it's it's a gateway for sure that's cool um so so what's in terms of you know uh, there's the nist guidance out pomerium's doing its thing what's what's sort of next um in the world of zero trust or the world of you know where where pomerium is in the journey of you know yeah. access context-based you know iam or zero trust or whatever you want to call it these days yeah um you know, I, I think it's for us, it's continuing to grow the community and build up that like, you know, basis of of users and, and being something that anyone can adopt anywhere and lowering that barrier of entry. And part of that is being free and open source for most users. I think that's, you know, getting the word out for things like this is a big part of that. Um, and I hope that just overall folks using, whether it's Pomerium or things like Pomerium, uh, more is sort of why I'm doing this. Um, I think the thing I'm most looking forward to in the future um, and making kind of like all tools like Pomerium more useful is, you know, we talk a lot about identity-based access, um, but I really think the future is uh, context and state-based access. So, you know, not just for like users, like, you know, state-based access for a user would be like, are you on probation? Are you like in good standing? Things like that. But especially on the device state side, like there is so much opportunity um, and we talked about ransomware in one direction, but you know, on the other direction is like asserting that the hard drive is owned in a good state and the device is encrypted and all these other things um, around device state, I think is really gonna drive the next uh, jump in, in security. Um, and what's promising to me is there's several open standards around um, device state backed by enclave systems or like uh, secure enclaves or TPMs um, that will make this increasingly possible. And, and seeing vendors like Apple uh, and Microsoft and folks like that lean into to those standards is really exciting for me. So that's a really long way to say I'm really excited about device-based state um, authorization decisions. Yeah, when I think about device state and some of you know some of the elements that you brought up, it, it sort of just reminds me of NAC. So, how would you delineate? And and I know in this case, context device state is just one part of it, and there's a lot that you can pull from the device state and make decisions mm-hmm. coupled with, you know, the environmental state and identity based state and all these other things. But um, from a just device state perspective, it sounds a lot like rules that I've seen written just on a NAC policy engine in terms of uh, is your system patched okay if it's if it's not it can't access the network um so would you say it's just very similar or complementary or yeah yeah I think it's very similar I think the extension here is though that um this would work really well in like a an, an environment where you might not even own the device. It's a BYOD device. It's not even enrolled in the MDM policy. It's like it's it's a basically unmanaged device, but has enrolled itself in via like WebAuthn. Um, I, I think it's certainly very similar to NAC, but I think it's 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 introducing that 
context at you know the decision point at the request itself uh, versus I think NAC is usually much more of a polling based mechanism, um, but it's certainly a very similar similar concept. Sure, sure. Um, so I guess my last question uh, is for for those who are for organizations or I don't know individuals, anyone who's really interested in you know this sort of technology. Mm. At what point would you recommend that they, you know, get serious about the the implementation of it? I mean, at what point in sort of the the maturity of an organization do you say, okay, I think you're ready for for zero trust? Because I think with a lot of other, and again, I'm just going to lump this in with like advanced security. You know, it's like you got to take care of one on one stuff, and at a certain point, you can sure. get to, you can get to something like this. Um, mm-hmm. But it might not. It might be that you know you don't have to wait till the end. You can just do a couple things and then bring this in because it can actually you know, there's a lot of ROI, you know, right off the bat, if you put this in, especially for like, you know, there's a lot of like web-based startups, companies that, you know, don't have a lot of legacy systems and have to worry about these things. They can bring something like this in fairly early on and and see a lot of value. So I'm curious, like, how do you recommend, you know, people think about this as a project and and getting started with it? Sure. Um, Well, I'm biased, but probably relatively early. I mean, like you said, I think there's some like, you know, must-haves that folks should do like you know single sign-on is obviously a step one because that's going to be a repository of knowledge for us anyway you know multi-factor authentication (coughs) nowadays is just i mean it's just such an obvious recommendation because it's so powerful especially if it's done by security keys going back to that uh device uh, uh attestation piece um but i would say the main way you know, I, I tell people is like, how's that? How's the VPN working out for your organization? Um, you know, is it? You know, do users love it? Is it creating all sorts of security implications that make you uncomfortable? Um, you know, if we were to externalize your network today, uh, w- would that would that make your skin crawl? And if the answer is yes, uh, you know, it might be time to look at something like Pomerium and deperimeterizing your network. Sure. Yeah. Well, also, I think I mean that nothing immediately is popping into my head. I've ran through all the questions that I had. I, you know, and um, I'm curious, uh, or I guess you know, if you've got anything else you want to share about Zero Trust or uh, Pomerium, feel free. Yeah. No, I would just say check us out at uh, Pomerium.com or on GitHub, like we talked about before. GitHub.com Pomerium slash Pomerium. Always looking for contributors. Definitely check it out. You know, kick the tires. See if you know the you should be able to get started in you know five or ten minutes and see if it it kind of checks a box for you. Um, yeah, I appreciate the kind of time to talk about Pomerium and get to chat a little bit more about all things zero trust and this and all that. So hopefully, uh, hopefully it was a good conversation on your side as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Bobby.